Well, good morning to you. Uh, we're gonna this morning. We're gonna continue our uh, series through the book of Acts. And so, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter sixteen. I'm gonna start reading just from verse one. We're gonna go through the first five verses this morning. Once again, that's Acts sixteen, verses one through five. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, I want to extend a warm welcome to you. Uh, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm the lead pastor here at uh, FAC. And if we haven't had the opportunity to meet, I would invite you to just uh, come up and introduce yourself after service. I know sometimes when you're either looking for a new church or coming to a new unfamiliar place, it's easy to get kind of lost in the mix and uh, lost in the crowd. But I assure you that it's our desire to connect with you uh, and to befriend you. And it would be helpful for us if you would make yourself known. And so uh, please come up and just introduce yourself after service. Or if you're afraid of me, which is understandable, um, you can actually stop by our connection point, uh, which is just straight out the back of these double doors. We always have a few people there to, uh, who are very eager to greet you and eager to answer any questions that you might have uh, about FAC. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Um, with this week being kind of the official start of the holiday season, I, I do want to put something on your radar. Uh, it, it is our intention here to host a Christmas Eve service uh, again this year. Um, but we do feel the need to be responsible, uh, given that we're still in a pandemic. And uh, so in order to accommodate uh, social distancing, we're actually going to try and have three in-person services um, this year. In the past, we've only needed two, but we're going to do three to help kind of spread out the crowds as best that we can. And all of the guidelines will still be in place for Christmas Eve. And uh, we would love for you to join us or if you feel uncomfortable to, to join us online in, in the live stream. Um, once again, I want to put this on your radar because we are also going to ask for uh, registration for Christmas Eve. And uh, the, the reason being is this. Uh, we want to know uh, kind of how many people to expect at each of those services. And should we need to cancel anything or, or change course at any point, which uh, this season of life for all of us, that's a very real possibility. We'll have a way to contact you uh, very quickly should something change between now and Christmas Eve uh, here in a month. And so, um, once again, that registration link isn't live on the website yet, but it will be uh, hopefully by the end of this week. I just want to kind of get that on your, your plate uh, so that you're aware and ready uh, for it when it does happen. So let's go ahead and turn now to God's Word uh, together. Uh, once again, Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. I'll read and pray, and then we'll begin our time of study. Luke writes, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word says that all scripture is breathed out by you, that these are not merely words or thoughts composed by human hands and human minds, but they are directly inspired by you. They came directly from you. And, and you tell us that your inspired word is profitable. 
for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so, Lord, although these words were recorded many years ago, uh, we still believe in the power and the relevancy of your inspired word uh, even today. And so we commit this time to you. And would your spirit bring to light the truths of Scripture this very moment so that we may be righteous in your eyes. In your son Jesus' name, we pray all of these things. Amen. On the uh, night before my first day of high school, our house phone rang. You guys remember those? This was back when nobody had cell phones, and uh, believe it or not, the whole family just shared one phone line. And my mother uh, picked it up, and just a moment later, she handed the phone over to me and informed me that I had a phone call. Uh, Now, as a kid, I didn't get many phone calls, (laughs) so this was an exciting prospect for me. Um, I thought to myself, who in the world would have interest in, in talking with me? Uh, at the other end of the line was a, a guy that I knew from church named John. Um, I wouldn't have even considered him a friend at the time, uh, much more of an acquaintance. To be honest, I don't even remember any conversations with him before that phone call, but I did know a little bit about John. Uh, he was going into his junior year of high school, And he was actually one of the more popular kids in our school, and he was also one of the more popular kids in our in our church's youth group. Uh, He he was very influential. And so, once again, when I heard his voice, I thought to myself, why is an upperclassman like John calling a pathetic freshman like me? What on earth would he possibly want? And before I could barely even get a word out of the conversation, um, John spoke and said, hey, Mike, a few guys from the youth group are going to McDonald's for breakfast um, before school tomorrow. What time should I pick you up? Uh, it was such a simple gesture, but, but I can honestly say that it had a dramatic impact on my spiritual life because that connected me with, with older, more wiser, more mature believers in their faith Uh, And that launched me into a relationship with them where they invested in me for several years. Um, And I can tell you that it not only proved impactful in my own life, but in the lives of others as well. Because as uh, just as John and some of those other upperclassmen invested in me in those first two years of high school, when I became an upperclassman, I, in turn, invested in those younger than me. I was the one that was calling the, the freshmen up. Um, when I was an upperclassman. And if you were to look at the timeline uh, and history of that particular youth ministry, you can actually kind of trace this spiritual lineage, if you will, throughout its history of leaders that have been impacted uh, by a former generation and then have in turn uh, passed it along. To the point where actually one of the students that I invested in when they were a freshman and sophomore, actually now serves as the very youth pastor of that particular ministry. Now, I don't say this to um, boast or even claim credit for his call to ministry. Uh, I, I just want to highlight the importance of intentionally raising up the next generation 
of believers in consideration to the health of the church, uh, the health of the church body as a whole. It, it is a crucial necessity to raise and cultivate the next generation of believers. And we all play a part in that. Here in the first five verses of Acts 16, we actually find Paul following that biblical model, playing his part uh, and demonstrating this very principle. This is a significant passage because for the first time we are introduced to that mentor-protege relationship between Paul and Timothy. And I want to take a look at it in depth uh, together. Um, In verse 1, all right, we see Paul uh, arrive in Derby and in Lystra, and he's there because he wants to check in on the uh, churches that were planted the first time that he visited there. He, he's been to uh, Lystra, he's been to Derby before, and if you recall back in Acts 14, um, things in Lystra actually started off really well, and, and then it turned south very, very quickly. It took a sharp turn for the worse. It was in Lystra where Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, healed this random guy miraculously, right? And it had such an impact on the people that the people in the city actually thought Paul was the Greek god Zeus in the flesh. And they were so enamored by Paul and thinking that he was Zeus that they actually tried to sacrifice to him. There was this whole barrage, this excitement in the city. They actually brought the oxen out. They were going to just, uh, they were going to sacrifice this thing right there in the middle of the town in front of everybody. And Paul's sitting there saying, no, 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 no. You guys don't understand. Please, please don't do that. Don't do that. I'm not who you think I am. Stop. And the crowds then decided, okay, we won't do that. We're going to murder you with rocks instead. And they, they stone him. And, and, and it's just this dramatic shift as, as they were influenced by other people against Paul. They stone him to the point they actually think he's dead. And they drag him out to the edge of the city and they just leave him there. They leave the corpse there. Um, but what they didn't realize is that he wasn't dead. He, he actually came to and there was other disciples that helped him. And they traveled to, to, to Derby, and, and that kind of capped off his first missionary journey. Uh, and so Paul doesn't necessarily have what we would call fond memories of Lystra and Derby. But then we're introduced here in Acts 16 to this young man who lives there named Timothy. And we're told that he's a disciple. In, in context, this means that he's a believer. He's a follower of Jesus. And this should be a great encouragement to us, even as we read. Timothy is a product of whatever happened there in between the lines of Acts chapter 14. Somewhere in the midst of all of that, in the persecution and in the turmoil, there was fruit from Paul's visit. The flowers bloomed in adversity. Timothy's faith is a direct result of Paul taking that initial journey to these cities that eventually just purged him out and rejected him. And so who is this young man, Timothy? We read that he is the son of a Jewish woman who was also a believer, but that his father was a Greek. The way that this is written implies that Timothy's dad was not Jewish, 
and he was also not a believer. There's a chance even that Timothy's father has already passed away. And so what we have and what's important here is that we've got Timothy, who is the offspring of a mixed marriage ethnically. And while this isn't a big deal today, nor should it be, it would have been a very big deal in this first century culture, especially between the Jewish people and the Greeks. Let me explain. About 200 years prior to this, the Jewish people were actually ruled by the Greeks. And the Greeks put a very, very strong effort into pushing their culture and their way of thinking and their ways onto the Jewish people. And some of the Jewish people actually embraced that. Uh, They would go on to be called Hellenized Jews, right? The ones that kind of assimilated into Greek culture. But there were other Jewish people that said, absolutely not. We're sticking to our guns. You can't force your culture on us. So we're not going to do, we're not going to do what you want us to do. Right. And, um, they, they fought back, uh, as, uh, as the, against the Greeks as they tried to push their culture on them. And this actually resulted in what we know as, what we know as the Maccabean revolt. Right. This is, uh, where Jewish people actually overthrew their Greek overlords. So there's this conflict, there's this tension, and now eventually Rome actually came in and just dominated all culture, right? They, they, they came in and just wiped everybody out. Um, but even just under a couple centuries later, there's still kind of this elephant in the room between the Jews and the Greeks. There's still this tension at play here from time to time. If I could use a modern-day illustration, it's it's actually maybe how we uh, experience here in the U.S., how we deal with the Confederate flag. It's a flag that was flown um, as the banner of the southern states, the Confederacy, if you will, during the Civil War more than 150 years ago. Uh, and it no longer represents anything formally. But here, 150 years in the future, it still creates some tension for people. There, there are still people that are deeply affected by this symbol from 150 years ago. So this is a similar experience that the Jews and the Greeks have. There's this tension between them. And then you have Timothy here, who is half Greek and half Jewish. He he may not be fully accepted as a Greek, and he probably isn't fully accepted as Jewish, but he's just kind of stuck in the middle between these two cultural worlds. But here's the wonderful thing about Timothy's circumstance. He may not be fully, he may not fully belong to the Jews, and he may not fully belong to the Greeks, but according to verse two, he does fully belong to the body of believers. He is welcomed. He is, he is, he is a believer and he is a part of that body. It says that he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. He, belongs. He's one of them. Galatians 3.28 would resonate with Timothy. If you were to look there, Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so as a side note, if you ever feel like Timothy, where you're just saying, I just don't belong. I don't don't really belong anywhere. I, I assure you, Please know that if you are in Christ, if you have turned to Jesus, you belong to the body of believers. You belong 
to Jesus. You belong to God. Timothy, mixed in his heritage, is a full-blooded believer and is well-received among his brothers in Christ. And it seems as though that is the reason that Paul wants Timothy to accompany him in verse 3. You'll notice that what draws Paul to Timothy is not a matter of qualification. Instead, it's a matter of character. It's a matter of character. It was his reputation. It was the fact that he consistently displayed among people from all over that he faithfully walked with the Lord. If you're sitting here today, and you want to know what the starting point of effective and fruitful ministry is. It's being obedient and faithful to God. That is the beginning of fruitful ministry, is obedience and faithfulness to God. You'll notice that Timothy is not a well-seasoned or experienced veteran that draws Paul to him. It's not that Timothy has some kind of vast arsenal of gifting or a specific skill set. No, Paul is drawn to this young man because he is a godly young man. And I want us to take note of what Paul does in the presence of a godly young man. Paul takes initiative. Paul takes initiative. If there's anything that we should take away from this passage, it's that Paul, as the more seasoned, more mature believer, takes the initiative upon himself to pursue Timothy. There's a very good chance that Timothy, as a young man, does not bring much to the table in this relationship. There's probably not anything that Timothy can do that Paul couldn't do better. But Paul takes the initiative to pursue Timothy. It feels very counterintuitive or countercultural, doesn't it? Because typically the younger has to pursue the older. Typically, if you want a mentor, you have to go after them. Even in our hiring processes, what do they all look like? We solicit a bunch of resumes. And whoever has the best skill set and the highest gifting are the ones that, that get hired. It's because you're qualified, whereas Paul is more concerned with his character. This was actually very uh, counterintuitive in Jewish culture as well. But in that culture, young men would begin learning Hebrew and memorizing the Torah as young as five years old. And once they turned 13 years old, it was only those who showed potential that were encouraged to continue their studies. The others were just sent home to work the family business. And then at the, around the age of 17 or even up to 20 years old, uh, only the elite group of students would kind of go on to the next step where they would actually pursue a rabbi. They would pursue their teacher, their mentor, their, their rabbi. And the rabbi would then get to decide who, who they take and they would be very selective. The rabbi would only choose a specific few from all those who applied. He only accepted those that he felt could live up and measure up to his standards, and he didn't waste his time with the rest. This wasn't the process for Paul, though. This wasn't a biblical process. No, Paul takes the initiative. Paul is intentional with Timothy. Timothy. 
And equally as important to Paul's initiative is Timothy's willingness. Paul tells Timothy, hey, I want you to accompany me on my journey. And Timothy says, okay, I'll follow you. And we can tell the degree to which Timothy is willing to follow Paul because out of the gate, Paul doesn't go easy on Timothy. Out of the gate, Paul requires Timothy to get circumcised as an adult. Let me remind you what circumcision was, that it was the mark of the Jewish people that symbolized their relationship with God. It was an outward physical uh, surgery. It was a surgical procedure, typically uh, conducted on male infants on the eighth day after their birth. Without modern medicine or the wonders of anesthesia, this would have been extremely painful for a conscious adult like Timothy. This would not have been a pleasant experience for him. Now, before we go on and continue on in Timothy's willingness, I want to take a step back and address why Paul required this of Timothy. This is a little glaring, especially in light of Acts 15, where we've been. In Acts 15, Paul was adamant that believers did not need to be circumcised. And all of a sudden, he is now requiring Timothy to do so. This may tempt us to think that Paul is inconsistent, uh, that he's contradicting himself, but this is actually not so. Verse 3 gives us the reason why Paul has Timothy circumcised. Take a look. It's because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And so once again, I want to draw attention to that tension between the Jewish people and the Greek people. Yes, Timothy is half Greek and half Jew. And yes, this does not keep him out of the family of God. That's what Acts 15, the the point was being, is that you do not have to be circumcised to be a believer in Christ. You are saved by the the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through the, the work of Christ. God the Father accepts you. You do not need to do anything to be a believer and so, no, Timothy, you do not need to be circumcised uh, to, to be saved. But in this context, his uncircumcision may limit his ministry efforts. Because remember, Paul would always go to the Jewish population first to tell them about Jesus. The, the, the synagogues were often a strategic point of contact for Paul. And so think about what this would look like if Paul brings his protege who's Jewish through his maternal side, through his mother's side, yet he is uncircumcised. As long as Timothy is uncircumcised, they will not have the same kind of access to the Jewish people because the Jewish people would immediately be skeptical of Timothy. They'll wonder, hey, where do your loyalties lie? Are you more Greek or are you more Jewish? Really, the key word here is credibility. Paul wants Timothy to have credibility. And and Paul demonstrates this sensitivity to the convictions of the Jewish people that they will soon evangelize. This ultimately is a tactical decision to set themselves up for effective ministry. Paul tells Timothy, if you want to join me, if you want to be effective, you have to sacrifice. You have to deny yourself and sacrifice in this moment. 
Last week, I mentioned that Paul was willing to do anything uh, for the cause of the gospel. And so it appears here that Timothy is as well. I believe it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a 20th century martyr in World War II Germany, that said salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you. Discipleship will cost you. Salvation is free. Come as you are, but discipleship will cost you something. True discipleship, true followership comes at a price. And this is why Jesus tells his followers, if anyone should come after me, he must deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. Why do you pick up your cross? Why does Jesus tell us to pick up your cross? Well, think about that. The cross was a tool for execution. If somebody picked up their cross, it meant they were going to die. So Jesus is telling us spiritually, you got to pick up your cross. You're going to die. You're going to lay down your life as you see it. We're going to die to our passions. We're going to die to our desires. We're going to die to our dreams. We're going to die to our comforts. And we are going to die even to our freedoms. In my time in ministry, I have discovered that there are many believers who have sort of this romanticized view of ministry. They would look at Timothy's situation and think, oh, what a wonderful opportunity for Timothy to sit under the teaching and the leadership of the great apostle Paul. They think that ministry is just bliss. No, there's struggle and there's suffering in discipleship. There is deep emotional and mental pain. And in Timothy's case, physical pain that goes with the territory. This may not be some sort of pipe dream for Timothy. Right away, Timothy is met with suffering and sacrifice, but he was willing. He was willing to take those steps. He willingly denied himself that day for the sake of the gospel. This is the model that we have. This is the relationship between Paul and Timothy here in Acts 16. And this is the essential first step of a partnership in ministry. Paul takes the initiative. Timothy is willing to follow. Initiative and willingness. And that's our application this morning. Disciple making is dependent on the initiative of mature believers and the willingness of those they pursue. Disciple making is intentional. Just as Paul intentionally chose Timothy, we as Christ followers should be on the lookout for willing younger believers in order to build up their faith so that they may in turn pass it on to the next generation. This should be done both on an individual basis and this should be done on a corporate basis. Individually, really, you can sit here and you can ask yourself the question, who am I walking with? Who am I walking with side by side in my life right now? Because I believe every single believer should have a Paul in their life that is walking just ahead of them down the road of life. Who is actively encouraging you? Who is actively challenging you in your walk with Christ? Who is investing in you? Who is your Paul? And don't stop there. 
because I believe every believer should also have a Timothy in their life that is walking just behind them down this road of life. So who are you actively pursuing? Who are you actively pouring into? Who are you actively and intentionally raising up and building into spiritually? Who is your Timothy? Seek them out. Take the initiative and raise them up. This is how we can individually play a part in multi-generational disciple-making, but we also have a responsibility as a church to do the same corporately. To be a missional church or a sending church, as I've mentioned a lot this year, we must participate in this disciple-making process. And if we want to be a a church that sends workers out into the harvest field, we must raise them up first. And it takes time. We need to grow that. We need to grow our replacements, if you will. My oldest brother and I have uh, had many conversations to this end. Um, He's a lead pastor actually up in Wisconsin and someone I deeply respect. And several years ago, he actually wrote an essay on this, on this topic, on this biblical model of raising up disciples. And so I had him send it to me this past week so that I could take another look at it. And, and I want to just paraphrase a portion of his essay. He has, he's much better with words. Uh, than I am. And I'd love to call these words my own, but they're not. Uh, and so I'm just, like I said, I'm going to read, I'm going to paraphrase what he wrote in this. Uh, he writes in the context of pastoral ministry, um, but I think it could really expand to any kind of ministry within the church. He writes on the first page of the essay that given the importance of pastoral ministry, the crucial necessity of future pastors to the life of the church and the general health of God's people we would do well to examine the biblical data on how leaders are raised up and cultivated. That's kind of what we've briefly discovered here today and discussed this morning. Later on in the essay, he goes on to write that we have a responsibility, not just individually, but as a body of believers to create ministries and to create programs in our church that will intentionally seek out gifted people from uh, among our congregation. We need to watch their lives. We need to test their character. We need to take the initiative, seek them out, and raise them up. And if we were doing this the right way, the biblical way, if you will, young men and women actually wouldn't need to pursue ministry because ministry would pursue them. Paul recognize the importance of equipping a successor to carry on the work of the gospel after his life was over. And he found that person in Timothy. And after Acts 16, um, Paul and Timothy would go on to serve as very close ministry partners for probably 15 to 20 years, right up until Paul's death in Rome. They formed this beautiful uh, relationship in scripture. Uh, Paul refers to Timothy as a coworker in Romans 16, 29. He refers to him as a son in Philippians 2.22. He calls him a brother in 1 Corinthians 1.1. Timothy's name continually pops up throughout the rest of the Bible. And he would actually go on to co-write with Paul six of the New Testament books that we read from even today. It's this wonderful partnership in ministry, and it's all because 
Here in Acts 16, Paul took the initiative and Timothy was willing to follow. It's the biblical model set before us. And it's important to note that the model doesn't end with Timothy. We get to the end of Paul's life and he knows that his time is coming to an end. And so he writes a letter to Timothy. We know it as Second Timothy. Right? This book is like Paul's swan song. It's most likely the last letter that he wrote before his death that we actually have. And if you read 2 Timothy in that context, knowing that Paul uh, was at the end of the road here, it'll become very evident what the apostle Paul values and what he views as most important for the church's future. And this theme of building into the next generation is layered all over 2 Timothy. I want to um, read from you 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, because once again, this model does not end with Timothy. Take a look at what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And you have heard from me in the presence of, uh, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul is saying, Hey, look, Timothy, I have trained you. I have cultivated you, I have invested in you, I have taught you, I have grown you in the faith by the power of the Spirit. And now take what I've taught you, what you've learned from me in the past, and and, and take that with you and pass it along. Teach others. I want you to notice the multi-generational emphasis in that verse. In that verse, there are four generations represented. Because you have Paul, who teaches Timothy, who, who teaches other uh, faithful or uh, reliable men. And then those faithful and reliable men go and, and teach others. Our work in the here and now is so significant, way more significant than we may think. So I urge you, individually and corporately, to pass the baton, pass the baton to the next generation. And I want to end on one final note. Notice that this model doesn't end with Timothy, but it also didn't begin with Paul. Who did this model originate with? It begins with God the Father. God the Father, who took the initiative to pursue you. God the Father, who took the initiative and chose Jesus, God the Son, to be sent on a rescue mission for you. God the Father appointed Jesus to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death and to rise again so that you may have life. And not just any life, but life to the fullest. Life designed as God originally intended it to be lived. As the shepherd seeks for the one sheep who is lost, who goes after the lost sheep, God is actively seeking you. He is actively pursuing you so much so that Jesus came from heaven to earth to come and get you, calling out to you, to draw you to himself. I assure you that if you do not know Jesus, 
you are lost. But God would not want you to stay in that state. He is pursuing you. And so this very morning, would you be willing to deny yourself and humbly submit to Christ? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this example in Paul and Timothy. And the way that you use both of those men, Father, has had a direct impact uh, on my life personally. And I praise you, Father, that these were real people with real experiences, with real hardship, uh, and even thousands of years later are still uh, bearing fruit in their ministry because they were willing uh, to do what you had called them to do, Father. I thank you that you pursue us. Lord, we were incapable of seeking you in our sin and in our rebellion against you, Father. But in your love, you didn't count that against us. In your love, you have graciously opened up your arms to be, for us to be received by you. So I pray, Father, that in this very moment, somebody would turn to you and ask for the forgiveness and experience the life giving relationship in you, Father. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.